Well, we have some Q and A time. How many of you were here for, not here necessarily, but we were in Deira for the conference with Don Carson? How many of you were here? Great. So you got to witness me doing a Q&A with Don Carson. Anybody remember that? How he basically didn't answer any of my questions. Of course, he was gracious in doing so. He laughed and we laughed and you laughed and we all laughed. It was great. I still remember asking him about a book recommendation. I still, I'm still waiting for that. Now, I tell this to, to Gary here as I said, okay, hey, we're going to do this Q&A. We're going to do this thing. I just wanted to tell you about my last experience with uh, Dr. D.A. And uh, are we going to have a similar experience or not? And when I asked him that, he said, actually, Don did the same thing to me. Yeah. So you had the same experience, right? Almost exactly the same. I, I asked him for a book recommendation. <laughs> he gave the same answer. And of course, I think like you, all my friends were sitting watching. <laughs> they were rolling about on the chairs as I desperately tried to get Don to say more than I don't engage in hindsight or, you know... <laughs> I, I need just, to know all the books you've read in the last hundred years. I was, just, I I was so encouraged by that. Yeah. So yeah. encouraged that I was not yeah. the only one no. shut down. Been there, done by that. By DA. We've yeah. all been there, yeah. at least the two of us. <laughs> well, I'm excited to do this Q&A with you then. Very excited about it. <laughs> Got lots of questions. Can't go through all the questions. Sorry. I, the, I even have more. Whoa. This is exciting. Even more questions. Good questions. Okay, well, this, this will make the, make the first cut here. So I have about ten questions. I don't know if we'll even get through all that I have in my, in my hands here. Um, a lot of these questions are just really, how do we, we apply what we've <clears throat> been hearing tonight yep. in our lives? And I don't know if it's just because we just had a session about sex or because that's what people want to ask about, but all the questions, 99.9% of the questions were about sex. <laughs> surprising, <laughs> men. <clears throat> very surprising and shocking at that's that. Nothing, su- nothing about quiet times and devotional <laughs> times in here. There's just no- nothing about true spiritual friendship. <laughs> nothing about prayer. All right, on to it. <laughs> well, just the first question, just let me just help us. I really, really appreciate that the second talk, especially that last part about just emphasizing repentance, thinking about ways that we have sinned, turning from them. We'll talk yeah. a little bit about that in a minute. But maybe could you paint a picture for us of maybe what, what is a healthy, what does healthy intimacy look like in a marriage? Healthy sex, intimacy, uh, Maybe give us a picture of, okay, this is maybe what it should look, at, look like in terms of us as husbands in here, for those that are married. What are the questions we should be asking ourselves if that part of our marriage is healthy? Maybe what are some ways that we can lead our spouse, lead our wife in that? So, um, Yeah, well, I think, I think for me, um, loving, loving Fiona starts this, the second that I wake up. Uh, in the morning, and and at that stage, what I what I need to do, and and in a sense, you know, what I what I need to do in all of life is, is what I need to do for Fiona is an extent. It's just an expression of what I need to do in life, and it's at that moment, getting out of bed this morning and saying, Lord, you know, help help me to live out of Your grace today. Help me to remember that Jesus died for me and to love other people as a result. And at that stage, you know, there there is the the most important person in my life in the bed next to me. And from that moment, I, I need to serve her by putting her first and thinking of her. 
you know, so, you know, that may, that may start with, you know, making her a cup of tea in the morning, you know, which is what, what she likes. But then at every, sec- every second through the day, I have to keep making that decision. You know, I do have a tendency to say, there's your cup of tea. What, what a great husband you have. You know, that's <laughs> Now I can relax and make the cup of tea. Um, but it's just that every second that, that my orientation, my responsibility, my joy is to put Fiona first. And, and I think also for me, what that means is, I mean, we've been married 23 years. You know, we know each other better than we know any other human being, but still not assuming that I know exactly what's going on in Fiona's head. I don't always know how best to serve her, but that I am constantly starting the conversation. And I think that's the thing that she wants most and appreciates most. You know, that even if I start, if I open the conversation in a slightly ham-fisted way or I I don't quite, you know, I I say it wrong, uh, what Fiona wants from me is, is just for me to care enough to take the initiative. Not to solve everything, not, you know, taking the initiative, maybe asking a question. It may be simply saying, okay, you, you, don't, you don't seem yourself today. Is it something that I've done? Are you feeling under pressure? No. Uh, tell me so that we can either work it out or we can, you know, I can help. It's just, I'm, I'm not, uh, you know, over the years I've got better at this, but I'm not. You know, there's a long way to go. But it's that when I'm loving Fiona well, it's just constant initiative taken. And she would say that just frees her up to be herself when she knows that that I've kind of got her back. And that even when I'm the cause of the tension, that I care for her enough to raise the issue. And, And there's a sense in which for us, sexual intimacy flows out of that. And it both makes sex, I think it recognizes what a precious gift from God sex is, but it also relativizes it. Because I find that if I have actually been loving Fiona well during the day, that um, I'm in a position to take the initiative in terms of talking about, you know, sexual intimacy. But also sex becomes about her rather than about me that if I have actually been making that kind of series of decisions all the way through the day where I genuinely am caring about where, my, you know, where she is, how she's doing, that, that I know what's on her mind, that, 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 it, that it comes... Some, sometimes the, it's very obvious that the loving thing to do is actually not, you know, not to have sex, that it's the last thing in the world that she wants to do. But if, I, if my heart and head are in the right place... That that's per, that's perfectly okay, and in fact, actually, it, it's how can I put it? Uh, it's special. It's special not having sex, you know, not having sex because you know that it's the loving thing to do, and Fiona appreciates that just as much as if you know, as if we end up, you know, kind of making love at the end of the day or whatever. So, but I think for me, it is just a series. It's like the, I mean, in a sense, living as a Christian is living from moment to moment, making decisions to, to do what God says, to, you know, to love Christ and love other people in the strength that he supplies. And I think really, you know, the, the whole area of sexuality is just a, is a subset of that. Does that make sense? Yeah, you, you mentioned something in there about talking to Fiona yeah. about sex and about physical intimacy. 
Speak a little into, into that. Is, that. is that normal? Do you find relationships, as, as you talk to married couples or, or men, like, is that, is that, is that normal? Or, or husbands, is that one way to lead your wife, to be talking about it? I, I, yeah. Speak into that a little bit. It really? seems like no, maybe no. some of these men in here, like, no. whoa, that's, maybe it's kind of awkward. And one thing, thinking about the different cultures represented in this room, yeah. there might be certain cultural backgrounds where, whoa, we, we just, we just, we're just, it's not natural for us to talk about it. <laughs> what, what, yeah, like my cultural background. Yes. It's Nigel. <laughs> There's at least one other Northern Irish man in here, you know. I'm, yeah, I've I've never heard my dad speak about anything to do with to do with sex, you know, or my mum actually, you <laughs> know. So, um, I I think I think it is just part of lovingly taking the in, taking the initiative, and it's not, you know, it, I'm not. It's not that we, we don't necessarily have long conversations about this. Mm-hmm. It is just actually raising, you know, raising the issue, raising the possibility. It's being, you know, me being honest and loving with Fiona. That, and, but I think it's allowing her to be honest with me. You know, so it's at the level of, you know, sometimes I say, like, you know, Fiona, I want you to know, I just, you know, I'd love for us to make love tonight. You know, but I know you're struggling. You know, so really there is, you know, there is no pressure at all. Um, and sometimes she'll just, you know, she'll say to me, you know, uh, um, you know, she'll say to me, like, if she's really, you know, if she's been really exhausted or something, sometimes she'll say to me, like, you know, I'm really sorry, I would have, I would have loved to have made love last night, but I was just so tired, or something happens with one of the kids or whatever. But it's just those little, they're not developed conversations, you know, it's not, it's just saying, I, you know, I love you. I know that this is a part of our relationship. It's a precious part of our relationship for both of us. But, but it's just, it, it's not allowing it to become the main thing. And I think that's the danger that sometimes if you never, ever talk about it, it becomes this huge thing. And I can't remember, I, I, I thought I was maybe going to mention it in the last talk, but we, we'd, uh, we'd, this, you know, we'd the students around... Um, we're, we're actually talking about the married students came around to talk about how difficult it is sometimes to just talk about Jesus in our relationships. No, never mind sex. Uh, but we were talking, we just got the blokes around in a circle, and I just asked them what was the single issue in their marriage that they found hardest to raise? You know, and the first three guys all said sex without a moment's, a moment's hesitation. You know. Why is that? Why, why is it so hard for us as men? I think for the most part, we enjoy being intimate with our, with our wife. We're thankful that we're married. Yeah. Why is it so hard then, our best friend, our wife, to, to talk about it? I think it's because we're selfish, actually, and I think we know. I, I, think the, I think it's hard to learn to speak about sex in a way that's loving and actually believe our, you know, that, <laughs> you know, that it's authentic, that we're not just going through the motions. I think, I think sometimes, if we're really honest... Uh, we just want to have sex rather than to love our wives well. If that's, and, I, and I think sometimes that, you know, so we have conversations with our wives which start something like, you know, I really wish you understood my needs better. And as Christians, sometimes we try to dress that up, but actually that's what we're saying. You know, I, I'm, I am feeling unsatisfied sexually and I'd really like you to satisfy me, which is intrinsically selfish. Now, I'm not saying, you know, that, that, that you can't have that conversation in a loving and a helpful way, 
But I think the pattern the Bible says the Bible sets up is if we it's our job to relentlessly put our wives first if we're married. And then that would that that should free them up to love us back. Um, but if if we do that and you know and our wives don't, it's not our problem to fix our wives' mm. sin. And that you know it's our job to focus on being loving. Yeah. yeah. We have a couple couple questions that are kind of similar. One one man writes, "Is it okay to lust for my wife or to tell her how much you long to have sex with her?" Uh, no to the first one, and yes in the way that I've described. Okay, so you know, I think that the issue with the issue with lust is that it is saying, and in effect, it's objectifying your wife. It's saying, "I want your, I want you to satisfy my need." You know what? And it's it's all it's about lust is all about me. You know, love is all about the other person, and essentially, so. Now, is it okay to say that that you'd love to have sex with your wife? Of course, but but as a part, of, as a celebration of your relationship and the precious gift that God has given you and each other, you know, rather than just you know, I'd love to have sex because sex is great. I really like sex. You know, it's without any reference to what's mm-hmm. good for your wife and what she might like. Yeah. What about the opposite end? What what do I do if my wife doesn't want to have sex? Um, or do you? kind of wisdom would you give to a brother here who might be in that situation? Uh, uh, it's really hard without knowing, you know, but without knowing the details of the situation. All I can say that for me, the, uh, the safest thing is to assume that it's probably partly my fault at least. Um, that there, c- there can be all kinds of, of just very practical reasons, you know, why you, you know, I mean, a man's sex drive and a woman's sex drive are so completely different. You know that <laughs> I remember asking Fiona like why, you know, why she didn't seem interested in sex uh, at a point where um, we'd we'd two children under three and we probably hadn't slept for about six weeks. You know, really, I couldn't work it out. You <laughs> couldn't know. figure that out. No, huh? no really. No Einstein you know, what there. What's wrong with you? No. <laughs> um, you know, sometimes there, there are all kinds of things. But, you know, for me, um, I mean, we're, you know, we're just different people. You know, but for Fiona, I know that if she's upset about the children, uh, she, she just, you know, she feels that so deeply. You know, that, that for me, I actually have to say, okay, my job here is to, to be a loving husband, to help Fiona to be a godly mom, to help Fiona to find her security in Christ, to address... To, to do whatever we need to do together to love our children well. And for her, that becomes, that is the most important thing in her mind. You know, so if she doesn't want to have to, it may be because actually she's just really caring about someone else. Mm. And there's something wrong if I'm then going, okay, have we sorted out children? Now can we have sex? You know, it's, it, it's just trying to respect that and to love her well yeah. in that. So. so part of what I'm getting at is, number one, you love Jesus, overflow of that, you love your wife. Yeah. You love her as yeah. Christ loves the church selflessly. And then under that, you're, you're communicating, you're talking yeah. with, your, with your best yeah. friend. You're not growing in bitterness and being silent. You're not running away to yeah. satisfy desires somewhere else. Yeah. You're, you're looking to pursue yeah. your wife. Yeah, yeah. And that's right. I mean, I think, you know, what I said often, it's my fault that, that sometimes for Fiona, um, the reason, if she doesn't want 
you know, it may be tiredness, it may be something big that she's grappling with that, that's sapping her energy, or it, but actually more often than not, what, we disco- what I discover is that, that I am not loving her well, you know, that she is feeling that I haven't been cherishing her, that, you know, work, life, college or something has, has taken over first place in my life, and so she feels... You know, I, I need to win her back, essentially. Mm-hmm. And, and sometimes that takes, you know, I don't, I don't want to overstate that win her back, but you know that, that there are things that I have to address. And if I address them in a godly way, it then frees Fiona up to give herself, mm-hmm. to, give herself to mm-hmm. me. I mean, it is, it, you know, this is where I feel like, you know, complementarianism, I think, really does kind of, really does play out in real life. You know, that in our experience, you know, whether I like it or not, the buck does stop with me. And that's not just a theoretical thing, that's a practical thing. That our relationship, I mean, you know, Fiona, uh, my wife, is a very gifted, strong, uh, feisty Scotswoman, you know? Uh, but I, we both, she would say exactly the same, that she says that our relationship, our relationship flourishes when I am loving her from, from the perspective that the buck stops with me. Not that I can sort everything out, but that it is my responsibility to, to make sure that it is, that we work through these things, that if I'm not loving her well, I take the responsibility to do that. And also when I do that, you know, when I, when I, pers- when I pursue her and face up to what I have, you know, what, when I try to address, get to the bottom of, repent of the things that I've done wrong, what it does, it just frees Fiona up to do the same. Yeah. Um, you know, and those are some of the sweetest times. Yeah. That's, great. That's a beautiful, beautiful picture for us. Let me, let me ask, I got several questions about um, homosexuality. Yep. So what is a Christian to do with homosexual desires? I mean, with a room this big, yep. probably men in yep. this room who, who feel that or struggle with that or know people that do. Yep. I mean, I think essentially, uh, the, the, at one level, there, there is no difference for, uh, there isn't really any difference in dealing with any kind of sexual desire. You know, what the Bible says is that, pardon me, the proper expression for, for sexual love is, is in uh, heterosexual monogamous marriage and so dealing with homosexual desires in a way is in the same kind of ballpark as dealing with heterosexual desires that are expressed inappropriately either outside marriage or actually within marriage either uh, within marriage as well so um, you know I, th- I think essentially uh, homosexual desires are just one example of wrongly directed desires where we're looking for satisfaction in anything or anyone outside Christ and that we need to we need to struggle with that and you know I think we need to be deeply compassionate to people who are struggling from with same-sex attraction but it's in not a way, the unforgivable sin no no but in a way we need to be deeply compassionate for people who are struggling with you know uh, opposite sex attraction no who are single you know um, not married. No. So pornography, masturbation, questions about that. Some are asking, you know, how, how do, what advice do you have for young men? But there's, there's others that are written by men that aren't necessarily young. I think yep. it's a struggle that could 
could be a struggle throughout the ages till, till, till the, our time is over on earth. How, what advice or what, what wisdom do you have for, um, for those that are struggling with, with pornographic images and things like that? Um, just try to guard yourself. Uh, and it, it's becoming increasingly difficult. You know, I think you have to be really, really rigorous. Um, find a way of using your computer um, which makes it really difficult. I mean, that, that's, that's not dealing with the root of it. We'll come back to that. But, but do, not, do not make it easy, yeah. easy for yourself. Um, for a long time, I've used the uh, X3 uh, accountability system where along with my two best friends, one's in America, one's in Ireland, we kind of for years we've just had this thing where it actually, it's a free program, certainly for a laptop or a desktop, and it just it reports any dodgy sites that you look at. Leads to some amusing moments, you know? Fiona bought some underwear online from Marks and Spencer, one's from my, <laughs> oh, no. my, my, my oh, computer. I got, yeah. I got a very amused phone call. <laughs> well, he was enjoying it far too much uh, from my best friend. And I was going, honestly, I don't know. What, what. He said, have you been looking at anything you shouldn't have made? And I was going, <laughs> Promise, no, I promise. No. <laughs> uh, but, I mean, in all seriousness, you know, that night, you know, the, what, the, first, line, the first line of defense is I, I just want to make it, I don't, I don't, I don't want to make it possible for me to look at that, to, you know, to, to look at stuff. Because sometimes, you know, you can be just innocently using your computer, something flashes up, I, I want a safety net. But, but I think ultimately the solution is about our satisfaction being in Christ mm-hmm. and, and dealing, facing honestly with what is behind that. You know, it's not just, you know, it's not just I'm weak. You know, it's not just, well, you know, I feel these strong desires. Uh, the reason why we look at pornography or, um, you know, masturbation is really the same thing is that at that moment we are saying, I don't believe you when you say you can satisfy me, God. I don't, I don't believe you when you say Jesus is the best thing there is. Right now I believe this is the best thing there is. Idolatry. Yeah. And that, that, that can only be addressed by, by the gospel. You know, now there are some practical strategies. You know, um, you know again, I kind of alluded to this later. You know, if you're in the habit, if you're in the habit of working in the house late, late, late at night on your computer on your own, there's nobody else around, and that's when you're tempted to look at pornography. You need to change your work patterns. You know, it's or or you know, just be disciplined enough that you set an alarm and you check your computer. You know, switch it off, go and do something that's not yeah. online. Um, you know, it's it's those kind of strategies. I'll mention a few more in the you know in the last talk. Okay. But, yeah. We'll wait. We'll wait for those. Um, really, just maybe one or two more. Um, Let's think about parenting. We have lots of parents, lots of dads in this room. We also have some, some teenagers in this room, too. Yep. Um, what is the responsibility of parents to talk about sex with their children? So we have dads in this room, maybe specifically to, to the dads. <laughs> yeah. What's our responsibility yeah. in the homes? Yeah, uh, my, my strategy is to have three daughters. So it's really... <laughs> it's much more appropriate for their mom. Uh, I tell you, I, I, Next question. <laughs> no, they, I think um, it's funny. One of the things that I, it was actually Fiona's parents did this with, with Fiona's family, but but uh, we do actually want to we want our our kids to grow up seeing Fiona and I delighting in each other, mm. and and even at this stage, you know, because I've got kind of two teenage girls um, and one younger one, even even at points to to hear us 
talk, you know, when sex comes up, that it's not a that awkward. That it's not awkward, no. and w- that we are quite happy with the, you know, that, that that we're not embarrassed by it, and we celebrate that, mm. you know. And uh, in fact, sorry, I'm laughing because just la- just last week, our nine-year-old. It's the problem with having you know two older sisters, mm-hmm. and you know our friends have got older sisters. Came home and announced in the middle of kind of family mealtime to her sisters. You know, she said, "You know." Mom and Dad had to have sex for me to be born. No. And <laughs> I, 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 her but sisters, her sister, the older sisters were just were they they were they were going oh, Becky don't and it was almost like you've you've given them an excuse you've given your mom and dad an excuse we know what they're going to say I just said Becky and you know what we had to do it at least three times you know. <laughs> No, you know, but we just we just said, like, you know, this is a precious, a precious. That's like one time every six years. That's right. Yeah, yeah. (laughs) uh, No, we just then said, like, you know, Becky, for us, this is a precious gift that God's that God's given to moms and dads. You know, Lucy, our eldest, going, okay, that is that's enough. Okay, we don't want to, you know, not not at a meal time. I think we, you know, but you know, so we just want to be relaxed, and you know, if if the kids are awkward about it, that's fine. We're not we're not raising it and confronting them with it, but we actually just want to speak in a way which matches with what we believe, with what we've been looking at tonight. You know that this that this is a precious gift from God, and it is about it's the you know in one sense it's a it's a high expression of loving of loving each other in the context of marriage, and we I just want I want our girls to to have the highest possible view of that. And I don't know, you know, it's, I'm a bit, I can speak a little bit about parenting kind of girls from 14 down, you know, but who knows what lies ahead. And mm. um, we live in a broken world and our girls are, you know, sinful like the rest of us. But, but I think for us, the most important thing is that, that, not that not that our girls grew up with us having imposed boundaries, although at points that's appropriate, but that our girls grew up with a very high view of sex within within marriage, so that without ever say you know, well we will say it, but but that the message they're getting is actually don't settle for less than the best, which is to wait until there's someone that you are committing the rest of your life to, and that marriage is uh, is the context for sex. So I'm getting three things there. One. Not being awkward, just yep. talking to them about it too. Yep. S- l- allowing our children to see us as a married couple delight in each other. Yep. And then, and then three, having open dialogue with them, like yep. pursuing them, talking through them, yep. tracking, tracking yep. with them about yep. it. Yeah. So that the only conversations they have are not the, the conversations that happen in the schoolyard, you know. But they are actually talking about at, at whatever level, you know, is, is appropriate for their age. And you know, the Fiona is, will will talk to the older girls. Um, you know, gradual, a little more, mm-hmm. you know, frankly, than we would talk kind of all together as a family, but just that they get that message. Okay. Yeah. My, my last question, and yeah. actually, Marwan, you or Chris, or whoever, if you guys can get the, the platform set up um, while I ask the last question. It's a book question. Yep. So don't shoot me down like DA. Um, a book or two <laughs> recommendation on marriage, on marriage, sex, relationships. You guys can just go ahead and get it set up. It's fine. Um, Christopher Ash, um, English guys, good friend, has written a book called, has, 
uh, written a couple of books, one on marriage and one called Sex in the Service of God, I think, which is really a, just a very thorough, warm um, look at this kind of biblical theology of sex. Any, anything that Christopher Ashe has written in this area is really helpful. Um, and an old book called The Mystery of Marriage by Mike Mason, um, which I'm sure is available online. Had a very, uh, it's the book I've read which has made me marvel at marriage, both the preciousness and the, yeah, the, um, I suppose the Ephesians 5 nature of marriage, how marriage at its best really, it does enable us to get a clearer view of what God's love for us is in Christ. So there are, there are a couple, but Chris Rice is the kind of go-to stuff. Helpful. Well, we're just going to bleed right into the final, final session. So just move that aside. That's okay. I'm going to kiss a fall over it. Thank you. You're right. Why don't we pray? <coughs> Father, we ask that uh, the things we've just talked about would prove helpful where we've said anything that was unhelpful or unwittingly uh, confused anyone or given just wrong advice for a specific situation, we pray that you, would, um, that you would overrule that. And we pray, Father, that, that you would help us as we kind of look at this last, take this last look at the song, as we start to think about how this book does actually point us to the Lord Jesus. We ask that at the end of a fairly intense day, that you would underline what you are saying to us, that you would give us the courage to respond and the strength to run to you, and that even as we go home, as we leave, that we would leave as men who are more convinced than ever of the need for us to love our wives where we're married, to put other people first, to live like the Lord Jesus, for we ask it in his name. Amen. Uh, a couple of years ago, this article appeared in a newspaper in Australia. Here, here's what it says. It's not written by a sexologist, I think. It's not a Christian, but here's what it says. It's a truth universally acknowledged that a married man in possession of a good libido must be in want of some nookie. His wife, however, is either reading Pride and Prejudice or pretending to be asleep. There is a wonderful scene in the movie Annie Hall in which the camera switches between Woody Allen in his psychiatrist's office and his lover Diane Keaton in hers. They're each asked how often they have sex. Hardly ever, says Woody Allen plaintively. Maybe three times a week. Constantly, Keaton groans. I'd say three times a week. From the time I started working as a sex therapist in the 70s, people have been talking to me about their sex lives. What I hear most is the business of negotiating the sex supply. How do couples deal with the strain of the man wishing and hoping while all she longs for is the bliss of uninterrupted sleep? It's a nighttime drama being played out in bedrooms everywhere, the source of great tension and unhappiness. To find out how couples deal with all this, I set up a research project. Through radio interviews and magazine articles, I recruited 98 couples to spend six to nine months keeping diaries for me, writing about their daily negotiations over sex. There are couples of all ages, from 20-year-old students to people in their 70s who have been married for more than 40 years. 
Young couples at the start of their relationships, pregnant women, couples caught up in the exhaustion of young families, women who want more sex than their husbands, and women who'd happily live without it. Older couples dealing with health health issues like prostate surgery and and arthritis. Some wrote every day for months. One man ended up providing over 70 pages of details of his love life, while others provided only weekly summaries. As I expected, women rationing sex took center stage. But with my sex diaries, it was the men's stories that really set me back on my heels. It's rare that men talk openly about such personal issues, but the diaries gave them permission to let loose. Every day I received page after page of eloquent, often immensely sad diary material, as men grasped the opportunity to talk about what quickly emerged as mighty emotional issues for them. Men might tell jokes about sexually deprived husbands, but talk to them privately and they aren't laughing. Many feel duped, disappointed, in despair at finding themselves spending their lives begging for sex from their loved partners. They're stunned to find their needs so totally ignored. It often poured out in a howl of rage and disappointment. Is that how you feel? Is it a source of pain and disappointment and anger for you? I know that some single guys who are Christians live with the frustration not only of the fact that they've never had sex, but probably will never have it. But I hope that if you're single, you realize that you don't have the monopoly on sexual frustration. As I once heard an old Scottish bachelor minister say on the subject of marriage, it isn't perfect mince and tatties, that's potatoes, all the time, you know. Last week, as I said, we had a bunch of students, husbands and wives in our house. And when we split up into those groups, when I encouraged them to talk honestly, to speak about the one thing we find hardest to talk about, it really was quite telling. I started to go around the circle and the guy who had the the, uh, lack of foresight to sit in my immediate left and had to go first, (laughs) paused for a moment And then he blurted out, sex. I find it really hard to talk about sex. Everybody laughed. And then the next guy said, sex. And the next guy said, sex. These are all young guys who are going to be pastors. They, they They are great, godly young guys. But I do wonder if for many of us, The gospel has never really touched the way in which we think about sex and love. Sometimes the church hasn't served us well in this area. Sometimes if we're honest, we've taken our view of sex and love more from movies, TV, perceptions, shallow joking among friends than anything else. Often I think as Christians, even if we've been Christians for many years, there there is a huge gulf between how we feel and how we think. And that's partly why this is such a valuable book. Because this book, perhaps above all others in the Bible, tackles this most real issue, the issue of sex and love. It gets under our skin, it reveals our hearts, it turns us upside down and reorients us through the gospel and to the gospel. Now, so far we've looked at how this book works as a whole, how to interpret it. We've looked at how the storyline of the book unfolds. Now in this last session, I want to look at how the specific teaching of this book applies to people like you and me and how it fits into the message of the Bible. Now I do wish we'd time to read the whole book and go through it, 
verse by verse, but there are eight chapters. We were never going to get through it, so we'll have to take a few shortcuts along the way. But please don't miss the fact that everything we're looking at in this session flows right out of the text. So I want to point you to seven basic applications of the teaching of this book, and here's the first. Sex is good, but it isn't ultimate. We've touched on this already. Solomon isn't the Bible's sex therapist. Song of Songs is not packed with how to deal with uh, advice on how to deal with your frustration if you think that everyone else is having more sex than you. Although in my limited experience, they probably aren't. Solomon doesn't spend much time telling us how to be better husbands except by implication. But what he does do is very clearly warn us against the real danger of allowing our attitude to sex to wreck our lives. As we touched on in the Q&A, basically Solomon warns us against idolatry, of making sex more important to us than God, of letting our libido win over our desire to obey. And that's a terrible mistake to make, because he knows, because sex really isn't the ultimate. Now, it's easy to miss how this, works, how this works in the book, but let me show you. Solomon does two things. He uses the experience of these two young lovers to highlight the emptiness of his own experience, but he also wants us to get the fact that even their experience isn't perfect. He wants us to see the real thing is incredible, but he wants us to see that even the real thing isn't perfect. 1,500 years before Hollywood, Solomon realizes that it isn't like it is in the movies. In real life, it doesn't look or feel or smell like the depictions on the pages of, the mag- of a magazine or on the screen. Sex is good, but it's messy and complicated and not neatly choreographed. Look with me, if you will, at chapter 3 for a moment, okay? First, the woman speaks. She's longing for the man, but he doesn't show up. On my bed by night, I sought him whom my soul loves. I sought him, but find him not. I'll rise now and go about the city and the streets and the squares. I'll seek him whom my soul loves. I sought him, but find him not. The watchman found me. I asked him, have you seen them whom my soul loves? Scarcely I'd pass him when I find him whom my soul loves. I held him and wouldn't let him go until I brought him back home. So I adjure by the gazelles or the does of the field that you stir not up or awaken love until it pleases. See, finding love is not straightforward. It's really hard work. It's great when you find it. Now, stick with me here. She compares the messy business of her relationship when she has to go looking for her man, the ancient Hollywood version. And there's no doubt for her or for Solomon that actually the real thing is deeply preferable to the Hollywood dream. This is hardly misty scenes in the bedroom where two lovers float across the floor, the beautiful people finding ecstasy and perfection. Look at chapter 5. I love chapter 5. 5 verse 1. I came to my garden, my sister, my bride. I gathered my myrrh with my spice. I ate my honeycomb with my honey. I drank my wine with my milk. Eat, friends, drink, be drunk with love. It's like the bloke has had his dinner and now he's raring to go. Okay, over to the girl. 5 verse 2. I slept, but my heart was awake. I signed. My beloved is knocking. Open to me, my sister, my love, my dove, my perfect one, for my head is wet with dew and my love drops of the night the woman says I put off my garment how could I put it on I bathe my feet how could I soil them she's being a bit of a tease oh there's someone at the door it's my beloved oh I couldn't possibly answer it I've taken off my dressing gown when I've washed my feet you know my beloved put his hand to the latch my heart was thrilled within me he tries the door but it's locked 
kind of easy tiger. I arose to open to my beloved. My hands dripped with myrrh, my fingers with liquid myrrh on the handles of the bolt. I opened to my beloved, but my beloved had turned and gone. My soul failed me when he spoke. I sought him, but found him not. I called to him, but he'd gone. And it gets worse as the watchman find her. And they say, this is like, this is every man's worst nightmare. Inside his beloved is ready. She is showered and perfumed. She's wearing the most alluring lingerie in her collection. You know, the fleecy pajamas are gone. The silky negligee is on. There's a knock on the door. She goes to fix her makeup. Verses four to five, she skips to the door, adjusting her skimpy little number to reveal a little more. Checks that her feet are clean one last time. And then she opens the door. And the guy thought there was nobody in. He's gone home. She's standing there saying, take me. And he's, he's left. One of the things I love about this book is it does just explode the myth. You know, sex is good, but it takes place in the real world of bumping your knee off the bedside table and cold sores and headaches and, you know, body odor and cars that won't start and children that can't sleep at the most inopportune moments and, and on. And urgent pastoral issues in the real world, it isn't like it is in the movies. And while real sex is eminently richer than the airbrushed, airbrushed version, even with real sex in marriage, Sol- Solomon wants, to get the, wants us to get the fact it's not ultimately about better sex. Because sex isn't ultimate. In this broken world, it's a gift from God. It's a, a marvelous signpost to the joy and delight that God wants us to have in him. It's many things, but it isn't ultimate. If you want confirmation of that from elsewhere in the Bible, then listen to these words from Matthew 22. Matthew 22, verse 23, we read this. The same day, the Sadducees came to Jesus, who say there is no resurrection, and they asked him a question, saying, Teacher, Moses said, if a man dies having no children, his brother must marry the widow and raise up offspring for his brother. Now, there were seven brothers among us. The first married and died and have no offspring left, his w- and having no offspring left his wife to his brother. So to the second and third down to the seventh. After them, all the women died. In the resurrection, therefore, of the seven, whose wife will she be? For they all had her. Jesus answered them, you're, you're just wrong because you know neither the scriptures nor the power of God. For in the resurrection, they neither marry nor are given in marriage, but are like angels in heaven. And as for the resurrection of the dead, have you not read what was said to you by God? I'm the God of Abraham and Isaac and Jacob. He's not the God of the dead, but the living. And they were astonished at his teaching. It's not the only thing that this passage teaches, but it is clear that Jesus spells out the implication of the song, that sex isn't ultimate. There will be neither sex, nor loneliness, nor dissatisfaction, nor singleness, nor unhappy marriages, nor sexual sexual frustration in heaven. We will have, well, I was going to say better things to worry about, but we won't have anything to worry about. We'll have more joy and satisfaction than we can currently imagine. See, even sex is just a foretaste of something more, something better. And I think this is a real comfort to those who are single. That, that yes, there will be some things that you may not taste here, but you will not miss out forever. You really won't. You can still see the signpost. Now, we're not the only generation in human history who have had to live in a world which screams at us from every angle that sex is the best thing there is on offer. And if there, that we're not having sex every night, basically from the time we're 16, then there's something really sad about us. 
It's one biography of the American actor Warren Beatty that alleges he's had sex with 12,500 women, which works out as an average of a different woman every night for his whole adult life, with no time off or holidays, illness, or days off for good behavior. Now, you know, whether or not that's true, they kind of, that's our world. You know, when we read about Warren Beatty or Tiger Woods or anyone else for that matter, or Solomon, even when we're condemning them, we're, we're tempted in our sinfulness to feel just a little twinge of envy. Because we constantly breathe in this tacit assumption that because our world is the way it is, we should try to get as much sex as we can while we can because sex is ultimate. And Solomon says, been there, done that, and believe me, it's not. So let me be very direct and say to all of you from this book, sex is great, but it's not ultimate. So don't let yourself be bullied into believing that it is. Sex is not our right. Sex will not make us complete. Having sex will not end our sexual frustration necessarily. Sex will not put an end to our sexual temptation. Sex can't do any of that. So even if you're single and are burning with passion, you know, you can move really quickly and try to get married this evening. Go to the honeymoon suite tonight. It wouldn't change you. It wouldn't end all your sexual issues. Only God can change us through the gospel and sex is not the solution to our problems. Sex is not the solution to our character issues. Only God is. Let's remember that the most complete, most fulfilled human being who ever has and who ever will walk on this planet, the Lord Jesus Christ, one far greater than Solomon, never had sex. Yes, it's good, but it's not ultimate. The second thing that Solomon says about sex in this book is that character and chemistry both matter. It's kind of hard to miss. I don't know about you, but, it, but it's a good thing. I think this song, I, I, I do love the honesty of the song. It stops us from getting all buttoned up about love and sex. It stops us from trying to act as if sexual attraction, which has got to be just about the, most, the strongest emotion we feel, is no big deal. It stops us from pretending that all we have any right to look for at any stage is a woman who wears sensible shoes, doesn't have an annoying laugh, and reads her Bible every day. Life's just not like that. We are sexual beings. But the song also strikes a fantastic balance between character and desire. Remember how this slightly forward lady kicks off the book? Let, me ki- let him kiss me with kisses of his mouth, for your love is better than wine. Your anointing oils are fragrant, but your name is oil poured out. Therefore, virgins love you. Now, there's plenty of desire here. Plenty of chemistry. You know, she doesn't want to kind of, you know, Auntie Ethel kiss on the cheek. She wants to smell him. But she also says, your name is oil poured out. Character matters to her. When he speaks in chapter 4, he mixes in lots of extremely creative and delicately suggestive compliments. You're altogether beautiful, but you've also captivated my heart which is my mind. You're a locked garden. She's pure and acts with integrity. There's both character and chemistry. Do you see the balance? We don't have to go all pharisaical and say, well, you know, the reason I was attracted to Fiona was because of her excellent Bible knowledge, you know? 
you know, or the selection of reformed resources on her bookshelf, you know. Nor should we go to the other extreme and say, well, you know, I married my wife because she's really hot, period. <laughs> it's character and chemistry. That, that's what Solomon describes. The third thing, desire is a decision. The refrain of the book keeps saying, do not stir up or awaken love until it pleases. Don't make life difficult for yourself by talking yourself into desire, by stirring up your emotions, your libido ahead of time. But even when we're married, desire is a decision. I heard about a businessman, friend of mine, who copes with the real temptations of his regular travel like this. When he sees a woman and find, you know, when he's traveling, finds himself attracted to her, he looks for something about her that's unattractive. Now I reckon that's a fairly risky approach, you know? Why are you staring at me? It's okay, I'm just trying to find something repulsive about you, you know? But... But, but he's kind of on the right track. <laughs> but probably the flip side of that would be more helpful. For those of us who are married or moving towards marriage, what we really need to do is think about our wives to constantly and deliberately recall what it is about them that attracted us to them in the first place. We need to see what they do and who they are and the way they speak and the way they love us and the way they care for our children if we have them and allow all that to feed into our desire for them. We need to make a decision to desire the woman that we love and are bound to. See, Solomon's clear assumption is that we do need to feed love to awaken desire. And let's do that for our wives. It is a sadness of the church all across the world that periodically Christian leaders, pastors, sin sexually. But the pattern is always the same. There, for the grace of God, go any of us. But, but how does this happen? And well, it all starts with a moment when a decision is made to feed wrong desires. And then another decision, and then another decision, and then another decision, and then disaster. Desire really is a decision. Four. Goes back to what we picked up in the first talk. Self-esteem is a big issue for women. Look at the opening of chapter two. I am a rose of Sharon, a lily of the valleys. As a lily among brambles, so is my love among the young women, the man says. Now, two verse one historically is read as if she's saying something cool about herself. You know, I am a rose of Sharon. I'm just beautiful. Actually, the Rose of Sharon, it's like saying, well, you know, if you were in Australia, like I'm a dandelion, a dog daisy. She's saying, I'm a weed. <laughs> Look at how he answers. He, for once, he kneels, it runs with a flower thing. He sees her vulnerability and he, affa- and he affirms her. He cherishes her and nurtures, nurtures her. You know, it's, you may be like a weed, but you're the most beautiful weed of all. <laughs> it's part of the fall that we're all insecure. We all lack self-esteem. We're all prone to looking for it in the wrong places. But in general, I think it's fair to say that women have a harder struggle than, than men. See, there is something in women which longs to be cherished, to be protected, nurtured, admired, prized. I don't, I don't mind being, you know, cherished. <laughs> but it's not really what I want. 
I want to be respected, actually. You know, that's why, as men, we generally try to fix things. You know? So, you know, I mean, I've been married, married 23 years. I think I've got this one wrong enough that I now, you know, I now have a reasonable strike rate. You know, but for long years, you know, Fiona would say, I had a conversation with so-and-so next door. I think, I think she was trying to put me down, and she said this, and she said this, and I'm not quite sure. And I would say, you know, hold on, I am here to mend your relationship with our next-door neighbor. And she would look at me and go, what, sorry, what are you, what are you doing? I'm going, I'm trying to fix it. It's what I do. I'm a man. You know, <laughs> you know, I'm caricaturing slightly, you know. But, but what is, she said, I don't, I don't want you to fix it. I actually, and then if I shut up for long enough to listen to the end of the story, I would find out that she'd actually fixed it herself. But she said, I, I, just, I just want you to listen. I'm going, like, why, are you, why are you telling me if it's already fixed? You know, you know, you know. But, but, but that's, that's just the way we're wired. Okay, that, you know, women, like Fiona wants me to, she wants me to invest in her, to care, to listen, to share. I, I want her to respect me, you know, kind of through what I'm able to do. But actually, for both of us, it's insecurity, one level. It's just part of the fall. It just expresses itself in different ways. So we need to take this seriously, not only about ourselves, but about the women in our lives. Okay? Now, that, that's, it does raise something uh, that is a danger, especially for those of us who are involved in ministry in church, or elders, pastors, you know, leaders at any level. Um, mo- the, 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 the friends of mine who've got themselves into real trouble in this area have not set out to have affairs or have not set out to get kind of entangled, you know, in sexual desire. But what has happened is that they came into contact with a woman in church who was very vulnerable, offered them the chance to fix things pastorally, and they started to get their self-esteem from someone other than Christ, but also other than they were looking to a person other than their wives to feed into that. So they felt like they were a useless husband, that their wife didn't respect them, that they weren't useful. They met another woman who was very needy. They were able to help. The woman was very affirming. They were affirmed. And desire started to grow and then they took the decision to fan that desire into flame so we need to realize that this is the situation that self esteem is very important to women and where that's our wives we need to take that seriously and where it's other women we need to realize how dangerous that is for insecure men who like to feel that we are doing a good job Fifth thing, God's timing can be trusted. Strong thread that runs through the book is that God's timing really, really can be trusted. That's why we shouldn't awaken love before it desires. What's the message to the daughters of Zion? Wait, wait, wait. That's why we find what we find in 8 verses 8 to 10. We have a little sister. What should we do? We should protect our little sister until it's the right time for her to be married. 
What will I do, says the woman, even though I'm sexually mature? I'll wait. I'll live in peace. I'll find my satisfaction and security in God. I'll wait because God's timing can be trusted. If you're single and sexually frustrated, what do you have to do? Trust God's perfect timing and wait. If you're single and just long to have someone to share your life with, trust God's perfect timing for you. If you're married and frustrated, you know what you have to do? Trust God's perfect timing for you. Live in his peace and love your wife. It's, com- it's not complicated. It's, it's hard, but not complicated. And yes, I know the New Testament says that a wife's body belongs to a husband and a husband's to his wife. But the truth is that the loving thing to do sometimes is not to make love. If you're married, our wives are fragile creatures. They need to be cherished and not guilted or bullied into sex. It's got to be about her, not you. And that's the only way it works. Um, for, for many years now, I've, I've been a, a dedicated Mac user. I, I love my MacBook Air. I confess that at times I've been accused of having an unhealthy obsession with my MacBook Air. I treasure it, you know. I cherish it. Occasionally, however, my MacBook Air gets a little bit sick. Its battery gets drained. Needs a little time to recharge. What I do? I wait. It's a loving thing to do. <laughs> no. I don't flip open the lid and start hammering on the keys as hard as I can because it's my right. No. That would be ridiculous and unloving and ultimately damaging. Yeah. See, I hope you get this. Even in our marriages, sex isn't ultimate. Loving our wives is, as far as we're concerned, it's all about her. That may be another area where we need to repent. And if it is, let's make sure that we do. Because, you know, God's timing is perfect. We, we can afford to wait. The, the, the sixth thing, um, I'll explain what I mean by this, but it's quite important. Sex is a community thing. <laughs> okay? Now, by which I mean, isn't it striking how many people are involved in this conversation? You know, this couple have got a relationship, but, you know, the daughters of Zion know all about it. The watchmen, the older brothers, the parents, it's, it's a good thing. See, our instinct is, certainly in, in my culture, that sex and what, you know, what used to be called courtship is inherently sneaky. You know, you, you kind of try to get under the radar in this area. Young couples want to escape, to, to steal time alone, to have private encounters. And at one level, it's perfectly understandable. It's an anticipation of, of what lies at the heart of marriage. But this book is a reminder of the, the, our connectedness, particularly as God's people. Relationships grow best in the context of a wider community, if at all possible in the context of an intergenerational community where young people are given gradually space to get to know one another, but not by cutting one another off but by enjoying the shared wisdom and help and support of the entire family of God. It's just much healthier this way. It's much easier all, all right. You know, when I, when I was a teenager, you know, there was this kind of endlessly repeated ritual. You know, that when somebody got a girlfriend, you know, they would kind of ditch all the rest of us, all their mates. You know, they'd just disappear. And they'd be besotted for, oh, I don't know, two weeks. You know? <laughs> then it would all fall apart and they'd try to slink back kind of into the group rather shamefacedly. 
And of course, being loving, we would never give them a hard time about that, you know. You know, but, but that's kind of how we tend to do it. You know, you break off your relationships to go and kind of try to find out if there's, if there's anything that's going to happen here. I think in the Church of Jesus Christ, we, we need to find ways of allowing especially younger people, but, but older people too, to get to know each other in the context of the community, in a forgiving space where, where they get to know each other in the context of lots of other relationships. So even if the relationship doesn't go well, they haven't invested everything in that relationship too quickly. And then the last thing, which really just underlines all that we've said so far, even the best sex can't finally satisfy us, only God can. It is worth stopping for a second to think about why we're so prone to getting this wrong. If we're single, why are we always in danger of obsessing about this? If we're married, why are we always in danger of obsessing about sex? Well, it's it's because we are idolaters by nature. As Calvin said, our hearts are idol factories and our hearts are particularly skilled at making sex-shaped idols. As if our hearts tell us that only if we had more sex, then we'd be we'd be satisfied. But Solomon says it doesn't work like that. And I suppose the big question for us that comes out today today is, do we believe him? (laughs) Do we believe God when he speaks through this king? Is pornography a part of your life just now? Well, if it is, let me say up front, if sex isn't ultimate, if it ultimately can't satisfy, particularly not when it's ripped out of its safe and delightful and unhealthy context in marriage, then it basically goes without saying that using pornography is a stupid idea. It's stupid because it's saying that we need sex to be happy. It's stupid because it damages our existing relationships. It's stupid because it plunges us into guilt. It's stupid because it's both addictive and dissatisfying. I'm vaguely tempted to ask you to put your hand up if you've looked at anything vaguely pornographic over the last month on TV or the internet. But I won't because, you know, it'll probably be too shocking. The people who check out these statistics say this is, in some cases, this is a worse issue in the church than it is outside. I know one of my best friends wrecked his ministry through it. But let's face why we do it. It's not just because we have a particularly high sex drive. Because our hearts are idol factories. It's because we are sinful and we choose to put intense physical pleasure before God. So how do we deal with it? I think I've yet to, I've yet to find a better strategy for dealing with this stuff than, than something that John Piper suggested years ago in one of, his, uh, one of the books, The Collection of Articles. It's a little acronym, it's Anthem. <laughs> He says, avoid as much as possible and reasonable the sights and situations that arouse our desires. Just avoid them. And say no to every lustful thought within five seconds and say it with the authority of Jesus Christ. John Piper says, you don't have much more than five seconds. (laughs) Give it more unopposed time than that and your desire will lodge itself with such force as to be almost immovable. He says, say it out loud if you dare. (laughs) I think that's good advice. 
And I reckon that five-second rule is, is they're wise words. Say no quickly. Then he says, turn, the, turn your mind quickly towards Christ as a superior satisfaction. You, you, can't, you can't just say no and stand around. You know, it's like a kid saying, no, I, I am not going to take that biscuit that I am not allowed to have out of the drawer. I will stand here and look at the biscuit that I'm not going to take out of the... I'll, stand, I'll just eat the biscuit. No, you know. So avoid, say no, then, then turn to something else. Get up, go do something else. Talk to someone else. But I think Piper's advice is the best. Turn your mind to Christ. Then he says, hold on to the promises of Jesus un, uh, until you win, <laughs> until you're over it. He says, enjoy a superior satisfaction. He said, cultivate your capacity for pleasure in Jesus so that you, you fight for the right joy. And then move into a useful activity. Go and do something else. Don't just sit around playing on your computer. You can Google Anthem later and you'll find it straight away. Now, those are all strategies for fighting, but they're not really the ultimate solution. Because the ultimate solution involves changing our hearts. And that change, well, it's not impossible, but sometimes it's a little harder to get to. But that is what God does to us through the gospel. In the 19th century, a Scottish minister called Thomas Chalmers preached a sermon called The Expulsive Power of a New Affection. It's a bit complicated, and the fact that he liked really flowery language doesn't help. But for me, it's, it's actually the most helpful thing I've ever read in this area. Even though it's the 19th century, he doesn't mention porn anywhere in the sermon. But in that talk, he says, we don't change by trying hard. We don't change out of guilt. He says, we change when we want something more. New affections, new desires. Jesus Christ himself presented to us in the gospel. Now, as you know, I come from Northern Ireland, and uh, for my sins, I am a Northern Ireland soccer supporter. Over the past 40 years, I have suffered through many long and painful nights in the cold and damp, watching my national team lose to such football superpowers as the Faroe Islands, Azerbaijan, Moldova, and, and Liechtenstein. Yeah? And, and just in case you know, that they're all re- those are all real places. I have, se- I have seen Northern Ireland lose to all those countries. However, there have been a very few rare nights that have been all worthwhile, made it all worthwhile. Like the 7th of September 2006, when an England team made up of names like Beckham and Rooney and Lampard were put to the sword in a thrilling 1-0 victory. All those 40 years of pain... We're suddenly worth it. <laughs> and one of my best friends missed it. He too had suffered the pain of many years. Even worse, he had a ticket for the game. <laughs> but he wasn't there. Why not? Because he just got married and it was his new wife's birthday. <laughs> Something had supplanted his love for our team. <laughs> his love and loyalty to the jersey had been driven out by a new affection, a new love. And that's exactly what we need to happen to us. 
If you're in the grip of porn, it's not enough to beat yourself up. If you're having an affair, it's, it's not enough to promise yourself that you'll go home tonight and you'll, you promise you'll change. If you're sleeping with a girl in the next office, you don't just need to exercise, self, exercise self-control, although that would be a good place to start. You need God to produce in you a whole new set of desires, stronger affections. And how does God do that? He does it through the gospel. God doesn't just show us the emptiness of the wrong way. He woos us and confronts us and thrills us with himself. He gives himself to us in the gospel. See, we really need to listen to Solomon. He knows that sex isn't the be-all and end-all. He knows that we live in the real world, the world of arguments and runny noses and periods and headaches and stress and the phone ringing and falling asleep and really not being in the mood and erectile dysfunction and accidentally kneeling on your wife and painful spots and all the other stuff that gets in the way of real sex it's a gift of God but it's not ultimate Solomon realized that what it is is the most dramatic visual aid the most tangible visual aid to grasping something else something bigger something ultimate and for Solomon it's a great picture it's one that he'd be happy looking at for a very long time, but it's still a picture. That's what he sa- why he says what he says in 8 verse 6. It is one of the quirks of the Song of Songs that on first glance at least it doesn't actually mention God. There's no direct mention of God anywhere <laughs> until the tantalizing hint of 8 verse 6, which is the key that finally unlocks this book. This is what it says. Place me like a seal on your heart, like a seal on your arm. For love is as strong as death. It's jealousy unyielding us the grave. It burns like blazing fire, like the flame of Yah, which is almost certainly a shortened form of Yahweh. Solomon almost certainly introduces God, the God of the covenant, the God of steadfast love at the climax of the book. And he does it to tell us how to make sense of everything else he's said. See, because of Ephesians 5 in the New Testament, we're we're used to looking at our awesome God, Father, Son, and Spirit, to work out how we should relate as husbands and wives. Paul says, look at Jesus in the church, and I'll tell you how to be a good husband. Okay? But Solomon tells us to look in the other direction. He tells us to look at human love at its best, committed, self-giving, exclusive, lifelong, passionate, marital love to get a glimpse of the love of God. If this book is a, a ray of light, we need to look along that ray to the source of the light. C.S. Lewis, who said something like that in an article called appropriately Meditation in a Tool Shed, because he starts off, I was standing today in the dark tool shed. The sun was shining outside and through the crack at the top of the door there came a sunbeam. From where I stood, that beam of light with the specks of dust floating in it was the most striking thing in the place. Everything else was almost pitch black. I was seeing the beam, not seeing things by it. Then I moved so that the beam fell on my eyes. Instantly, he says, the whole previous picture vanished. I saw no tool shed and above all, no beam. Instead, I saw framed in the irregular cranny at the top of the door, green leaves moving on the branches of a tree outside. And beyond that, 90 odd million miles away, the sun. He says, looking along the beam and looking at the beam are very different experiences. You see, that's our greatest need. 
to read this book and say, yes, that sex is good, but more than that, we need to gasp and say, God is good. If we are to be men who serve our God and our wives and our families and our brothers and sisters and our cities, then this is where we need to begin and end. We need to look along the beam to God, the ultimate, the one who is the gospel, the one in whom we ultimately find our joy and security and our significance through the Lord Jesus Christ. Solomon knew that, I think, and after his pretty debauched life, I think he came back to this truth and wrote it down for us, and I'm glad he did. I don't know if you picked this up today, but one of the odd things about the Song of Songs is the number of references to fruit and vegetables. You know, gardens in general. They're in a garden in chapters 2, 3, 4, 6, 7, and 8. There are pomegranates all over the place. Why is that? One of the striking things about the Old Testament as a whole is that there's so much garden talk. It starts with the Garden of Eden, the place which God plants for people like us to meet with him. The tent of meeting is decorated like a garden. The temple is described like a garden. Then ultimately, the end of the Bible, the new creation, is described like a garden. The garden is where we get to enjoy a relationship with God. And that is at least part of the reason why this song is in the Bible. This celebration of sex and marriage is to point out what a blessing that is. But also to encourage us to look along the beam. To show us a bridge to the ultimate blessing of knowing God and enjoying him forever. To show us that what we taste in this broken, messy, and complicated world is only a foretaste of the ultimate joy and satisfaction that we will one day find in the new heavens and the new earth with our God and King through the Lord Jesus Christ. So yes, read this book and aim high in your personal relationships. Yes, read this book and go home and speak to your wife differently. Yes, read this book and be realistic about the frustrations and challenges of life in our fallen world. But above all, read this book and be satisfied with nothing less than knowing the God of the soul. Don't just stare at the beam, look along the beam. For as Solomon explains a new bit better than most, Sex isn't ultimate. God is. No one has said this better than one of my great heroes, Jonathan Edwards, in a sermon preached in 1733. Let me leave the last word to him. Here's what he says. God is the highest good of the thinking creature. (laughs) And the enjoyment of God is the only happiness with which our souls can be satisfied. To go to heaven to fully enjoy God is infinitely better than the most pleasant activities here. Fathers and mothers, husbands and wives, children, or the company of earthly friends are but shadows, but the enjoyment of God is the substance. These are but scattered beams, but God is the sun. These are but streams, but God is the fountain. These are but drops, but God is the ocean. Therefore, it makes sense for us to spend this life only as a journey towards heaven as it becomes us to make the seeking of our highest end the proper good, the whole work of our lives to which we should subordinate everything else. For why should we labor for or set our hearts on anything else but that which is our proper end and our true happiness? Why should we settle for anything less than God himself? For he is our satisfaction and our joy.
Let's pray together. Lord, even now, help us to taste and see that you are good through the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ. We pray that you would wean us off inferior pleasures. Make us wise enough to settle for nothing less than knowing you and serving you and enjoying you both now and forever. Work in us, we pray, for our good and the glory of Jesus. Amen.